Welcome to Illumination by Modern Campus. Through this series, we'll be speaking to college and university leaders about the trends, ideas, and opportunities that are shaping the future of higher education and picking their brains for best practices and advice that leaders can apply to their own institutions. On today's episode, the Evolution's Editor-in-Chief, Amarillo Walia, speaks with Steve Pratt, who is Head of Engineering at Sativa. We talked to Steve about the employer perspective on the current labor market and how to create a lifelong learning ecosystem fit for the modern learner. Let's get into it. So, I mean, starting off right at the top, what are the most common obstacles to bridging that skills gap that tends to emerge between what higher ed does and what industry tends to need? And I'll answer this in general, not just polytech. And in my industry, I, I do a lot of engineering, a lot of product development. So, so in our industry, one of the gaps in general with education is the students basically are taught some of the curriculum they have and the way that they're graded and the way that they're judged. Everything is about getting the right answer. And in the real world, especially in engineering, there's no such thing as the right answer, right? You know, you don't have five digits of accuracy. So through their entire educational experience from uh, grade school all the way through post-secondary education, I think there's a disconnect between the way the teaching and the grading occurs and, and the real world. So it's always a learning experience when somebody comes into the workforce straight out of school. You don't have unlimited time. Perfection, you have to learn what I call the good enough principle uh, when you're doing your work. That to me is, is, a, is a fundamental problem with the way education occurs. Now, that's what makes a polytechnic education much more amenable and, and attractive to industry uh, such as myself in that it's really more of a hands-on thing. There's a lot more engagement with what I would call the real world, real problems, as opposed to the more academic or research-oriented institutions where it's really about, you know, I, I, I can't recall in my, in my 30 years or so career coming across any problem that resembled anything that I did in my engineering education because everything was exact, you know, inputs. And then real world doesn't focus that way. So, so right off the bat, I think there's an issue with that. Mm -hmm. It's just the way the classes are taught and the way people are graded. Mm -hmm. Another disconnect, once again, going into real workforce, people don't work in a vacuum in a silo by themselves. They work on, uh, on teams and they have yes. to be able to socialize, interact, um, work as a team with different personalities and, and different biases and different, you know, agendas in some cases. And, Going back to post-secondary education, it's all about you take the test yourself, you don't collaborate. So there's a, a real lack of collaboration, I think, in, in general. And, and, and again, the polytechnic education has a lot more what I would call teamwork. There's a lot more cross-discipline uh, type uh, activities and projects. From a way that you're graded in school, perfection is the goal. Everyone's shooting for the perfect GPA. Percentages are very important. When I give a performance review, we do it on a five-point Likert scale where, you know, three is meets expectations. That's the good score. Very, very rarely do we give a five. You know, that's mm -hmm. a walking on water activity. A four is, you know, your strengths, basically. Uh, we expect one or two twos to be identified, areas you want to improve. That's really hard, I think, for a lot of especially top students to grasp that, you know, in their mind, they're thinking three equals C. My mom would rip me a new one if I came home with C's. It's all okay. So it's, it's hard to have that honest performance discussion. Where do we want to improve when, you know, for 12 years of their life or however long they're in school is burnt in their head that the only thing that's acceptable is to get that perfect score. Right. What strikes me is that there's 
there's a commonality here in terms of like sort of soft skills, professional skills. You know, these yeah. these folks are coming out of school. They know all the technical pieces that they need to, to be able to hit the ground running. The gap is really in, in how they're able to sort of perform in a, in a sort of high expectation professional environment. There's definitely a gap there. I wouldn't go so far to say they know all the technical skills. That's another fair enough. That's another weakness for sure, but it's not really a fault of an institution because they have a limited amount of time and there is a mandatory um, curriculum that they have to teach. So is there's a, a lot of learning that has to occur once you come out of school and learn a lot of the tools that the schools don't teach from a technical perspective as well. But that's not something that I think realistically or practically can be addressed because of, you know, we don't have 10 year degree programs. It's, you know, two year, four year. And there's a, there's certain mandatory things that, that we rely on. I mean, if, if I have a candidate that has a degree that, that attained a degree, especially in a field like engineering, I know that they have work ethic. I know that they can solve problems because there's a certain bar that they have to pass just to get that degree. So I'm not concerned about what was your GPA or how well did you do? If you attain that, that bar, that's good enough. And then it comes down to a job interview. We peel back the onion. I really understand, you know, if they know what they're doing or not, but that does lead me to a topic that is a pet peeve of mine. And that is, especially in Canada, I'm, I'm an American, but I've, I worked in Canada now for the last 13 years and interact a lot with local universities. And there is a obsession with percentages I mean that's it that's all they look at when they have incoming students is percentages and I and and my experience in the U.S. is it's more holistic approach it's not just how well you did in grades there's also standardized tests like SAT there's also were you the captain of a football team or were you on the debate team did you hold a job there's a lack of that here where they don't look at the context through the situation and i don't think every student going into school is the same it's not about how passionate are you about this it's how well did you do on your marks right right so you may have an individual for example who's holding two jobs to help support his mom you know and and maybe he's getting c's and b's or you may have someone who has test anxiety right uh, that that doesn't get all a's and now for some reason they're you know, the criteria is solely focused on one thing. I think that's hurting the educational institutions and they're losing a lot of passionate, really good people because of that fascination with, or obsession. It's almost an obsession. It's all about marks and that's it. So once you have a situation like that, where it's all about marks, I think you lose, for for me, from from a hiring manager perspective, I want someone who's passionate about what they do. Yeah. And I could really care less what school they went to or what marks they got. As a matter of fact, they don't, I've started in my recently in the last five years or so when, when I do a job posting, I used to say minimum four year engineering degree required. Now the world has changed a lot. Now it's minimum four year engineering degree required or uh, equivalent experience An equivalent experience. I could be hiring a coder who doesn't have any degree whatsoever, but is a top notch coder because this guy learned everything online. He's maybe working on, you know, he's got a portfolio of like a crowdsource software Mm-hmm. Right. And and more importantly, the person's passionate about what they do. I would hire that person in a heartbeat uh, over someone that's got a perfect 4.0 GPA, but has never really done anything other done than anything. It's interesting. And, and I'd, it'd be it'd be interesting to speak to people that actually are, are running institutions or, or looking at future strategy or whatnot, because to me, it's almost like an Amazon phenomenon of what Amazon did to brick and mortar. 
the amount of options that students have available today to, to, to learn, right. That are, that are not when, when I was starting out, I didn't have this choices. It's like either you went to school or you're, you know, or you didn't and you went and got a job you know, down at some factory or something. There are multiple opportunities for people to learn. And I think more, a much more effective than classroom environment. And, and I don't know, I'm not in the educational industry, so I don't know if they're aware of, of the danger it is to their whole institution, uh, especially with the price tags going up, especially down in the States. It's ridiculous uh, what an education costs nowadays. Yeah. I don't think the payback is there versus the alternatives. I think you could get micro credentials and you could learn on your own, which would show much more initiative to me. If somebody goes out, they can take engineering courses from Stanford, MIT, proctored courses with certificates. I mean, you could basically get an engineering education and spend very, very little money. Yep. And basically put it together yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's almost like <laughs> all the custom education. And then if you come in and you like, to me, it all comes down to the interview. And it's very, very easy. I've done many, I've done hundreds of interviews now. And it's really easy to tell if someone knows what they're talking about or if they just know how to, you know, cut and paste, you know, what, what something that matches a job description. It doesn't take a long time to understand. Uh, I don't know. I don't have an example I can share, but I, I would imagine there's probably some self-taught people that would do way better both in the interview and on the job. You'd have to have some serious discipline, I think, to self-teach yourself something like engineering or computer programming. Absolutely. Well, you know, you raised a term there in the higher education space is causing some some consternation, uh, okay. which is this concept of micro-credentials. Now, our, our publication, our sector loves the yep. concept, but the concern is, and it's funny because you're coming from the position of employer, the concern is that so many folks say, well, micro-credentials seem interesting, but employers don't know what they are. So... I think employers know exactly what micro-credentials are because we have been teaching our, our workforce for 30 years exactly. The, it, it fills the gap. So I can give you examples in the engineering world, mechanical engineering. They really don't teach tolerance stack-up analysis. They really don't teach root cause, you know, fault tree analysis or, or, design, or DFMEA, which is design failure modes and effects analysis. You may have a design course that spends a week and just touches on it but they don't teach how to use those tools. And this is a type of thing that if you, you don't use it, you lose it almost immediately. So we are training, I have multiple courses I've put together uh, when we were a smaller company and now uh, where I work is recently being acquired by a large company that has a huge plethora of very wonderful two or three week long boot camp type training that I would classify as a micro credential. Whether you get a certificate, like employers aren't gonna care certificates or whatnot. But if I get a skills and I've got 15 bullets on there and those are the tools that we use on a regular basis, that mm -hmm. resume is going to the top of the pile, right? And then in a, in a course of an hour, hour and a half interview, it will not take long for me to figure out if this is just a peripheral understanding that came in a general design course or if this person has actually applied that tool and solved the problem. So I love the concept of micro-credentials. The other thing I like about it is it's typically, I would imagine, I haven't come across one where, where employees of mine have, have signed up for it. I would imagine based on the demographic they're targeting, they're probably gonna be flexible times. It's probably gonna be at night or weekends as opposed to in the middle of the day, which kind of brings me back full circle to another disconnect. If I need my work, my workforce is interested in professional development, but the options and opportunities available to them are not 
amenable or a typical work week. Mm-hmm. And typical after COVID, now typical also is a whole different thing because we have flexible remote work. But even with that level of flexibility, if you have a go three days a week at, you know, from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. for a course and you have to be on campus, that's not going to work for, for most people. So that's what makes the micro-credential thing very attractive to me. Also, I think it's an opportunity for people in industry to actually teach these courses, the people that have actually used the tools. I know I love teaching myself. I know I have a handful of people on the staff that I imagine would love to teach, you know, short courses at universities uh, or local polytechnical schools of the tools they use on a regular basis that they're passionate about, especially to an audience that really wants to learn. That's one of the nice things about that I would imagine is different from traditional teacher versus teaching in the industry is your audience is actually wants to learn and like there for a reason. It's yeah. not general education. And we do a lot of that I would call fill in the gap training. And it takes a few years for employees to really come up to speed. It's interesting you raise that. Cause I mean, not only is, you know, upskilling and reskilling just to kind of get on the level that you need to be at to perform, but like, yeah. You're in engineering, you understand Moore's law. So there, you know, there's, as automation becomes more and more a part of our everyday life, industry to industry, upskilling and reskilling is going to become a constant for every individual, regardless of space. So how can higher ed institutions pivot to better serve the upskilling and reskilling needs of employers like you so that your workforces can stay up to, up to date on, on what's going on? How, how do you build that kind of partnership? So building a partnership, um, I think it, it starts with a fundamental understanding, I think, of the relationship between educational institutions and employers. This is an interesting topic. If you look at the customers of an educational institution, the obvious one is the students. They need to cater to the students' needs. But there's another customer there, which are the hiring. If we're not, if we're talking about the hiring side of things and not, you know, academic research and that side of of learning, but we're talking about actual hiring needs. The final end user of the product is the companies that are hiring these students. So I think an educational institution has to, one, understand that their immediate customer are students, but also they need to take into account the needs of the hiring companies as well, if if they want their product to be, I'm just going at it from a product design perspective. And I've I started my career at Motorola and in Motorola, we were making uh, cell phones and our customers weren't the people that use the cell phones. Our customers were AT&T, they were Verizon, they were T-Mobile, Sprint, and they would dictate a lot of the features on our products, on Nokia products, right? That didn't necessarily align with what the end user, the consumer of the cell phone really wanted. And an example I use would be storing music on your phone. So back in the early 90s, we were looking at how to store MP3 music on phones. And the feedback we got from the AT&Ts and the Verizons were, that's great. You want to put music, you want to put photos, pictures on your phone with a camera? That's excellent. But we will not you allow you to have a USB port on the phone so they can hook it directly to the computer. That Those photos have to go through our network because we want to charge data. That's how we make money. What good to it is us if music and pictures are on a phone, they can hook it directly to a computer. We're not making any money on that transaction. So that's something that that's not important. We don't want it. Well, then you get a company like Apple comes along and they strike a different relationship and they don't really give a, a give a, a crap about 
what Verizon and AT&T want, right? Mm -hmm. And now look what's happened. Where's Motorola? Where's Nokia? Where are these companies? The institution, same thing. If they're just catering to research professors or if they're just catering to students and they're not thinking about the needs of the industry, well, then they're not satisfying, you know, they're not understanding that relationship. So that was kind of the first conversation I had with one of our local uh, institutes here where I said, listen, I, I, I called in the dean of the, of the program and we had a meeting because their system wasn't working for us, right? We were hiring two-year diploma graduates that thought maybe we want to go on to the four-year engineering degree, but there wasn't a guaranteed spot. If they didn't commit to the four-year program, now all of a sudden they're competing on a percentages with other students and there wasn't some guaranteed seat. So it wasn't working. And we were losing two-year diploma folks after a couple months that just got skittish about, hey, if I don't take my chance now, I'm never going to get a chance. Mm -hmm. So I called this meeting. At the beginning, it was obvious that the institution didn't consider employers as a customer. And I was trying to explain this whole customer relationship about, you know, in my industry, we try to understand the voice of the customer. We try to find their pain points, pain points that are important to them, that they're least satisfied, and that's where we focus. So it was really about that relationship. And I, and I ended up being invited on the PAC, their advisory committee. And ultimately, we changed their program so that there were, uh, I believe there's three or four seats that are reserved every year for two-year diploma people in the workforce that may want to come back and, and join and, and get a four-year diploma or four-year degree, which is great because now if I, 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 that's actually my preferred route now is to hire someone with a two-year technical degree, give them a couple years experience. When they go back and take those second two years of, of training and, and classes, they have a better understanding and a perspective that's more valuable to us. And it has nothing to do with you know, if they've performing well in the workforce for two years, to me, that should be the criteria that substitutes for whatever marks they happen to get in the prior two years. So it's kind of that relationship, I think, helps a lot is, is that understanding that involvement with industry. Communication is really important, you know, and, and not just once every six months at a PAC meeting, but regular communication, both directions, bi-directional. So where does higher ed go from here? I mean, as you've pointed out, it's, it's an industry in, in flux. There's a wide range of competitors that, you know, I think you're right. I, I think there are a number of institutions that haven't necessarily recognized the competitive landscape that they're in. And we've identified a number of areas and, and sort of gaps in terms of not just sort of academic programming, but skill development that are taking place. And especially with your point about micro-credentials and, and sort of their value. I mean, would a higher ed ecosystem that's more geared towards sort of continuous lifelong learning as opposed to, I guess, degree completion, be more suited to the needs of modern industry? It definitely would. Now, now there's aspects of the traditional education that similar to the brick and mortar mall, right? There's aspects mm -hmm. that I think are very attractive that you can't replace with a remote learning or with just a micro-credentials unless it's in-person micro-credentials. And that is the whole social aspect. So I think there's a huge benefit of people uh, being on site, in person, working on teams because they'll learn social skills that you won't learn remote learning. So I think there's a place for traditional education uh, for sure and a value in that regard. But also I think there needs to be some form of hybrid model. I look at the experience that people get at work 
and that doesn't count for really anything. And yet to me, that's, that's more learning environment than going and doing a course. So maybe some form of hybrid model where people get credit for, for actual experience, whether it's projects they work on at work, maybe it's a combination of a classwork, but also applying it on the job. I mean, I mean, I can't tell if someone, if someone does a curriculum an engineering curriculum and they get a degree, I know they know how to solve problems, technical problems, and I know they know how to work because it's a lot of work to do it, but I don't know if they can actually apply those tools because there's really not a lot of evidence. Whereas if somebody comes to me and they have five years working at a competitor and they talk about projects they work on, that's kind of evidence that they are competent, right? So maybe there's some model and I'm imagining people must be looking at this because, but maybe there's some model where a combination of, yeah, you, you showed up and you, and you got whatever marks it takes to pass, but you also applied that tool in some real world scenario. And that counts for credits or counts, counts for something. Absolutely. It's really refreshing. A lot of these perspectives are being shared on sort of the margins of the higher ed space. There's, there's a number of leaders, a number of innovators that are trying to create this kind of change within the post-secondary ecosystem. And I mean, you, you work with a number of them at Polytechs Canada. Like we are seeing this kind of innovation and this kind of thought leadership happening in the space. There's also a, a significant segment of, of the traditional academy that uh, seems to be very uncomfortable with this kind of change. And it's really, really refreshing when one of the major critiques is, well, these innovations won't serve industry. Industry won't understand them. Employers don't, you know, employers are comfortable with the model as it is today. To have you basically sit here and say, wouldn't it be great if all the shit that people are talking about on the periphery of the industry actually happened? So I'll tell you, I mean, it's, it, this is, it's really refreshing. Let, well, let me ask this. The people who are the critics or the ones who are concerned or afraid, have they sat down and spoken to industry or are they making assumptions? Because I think if they sat down and looked into what industry really wants, um, I, I don't think they would be as, as shocked. And, and I'm wondering, though, I'm, I'm wondering if there's a bias here. And I'm thinking more in terms of the research level universities, the one that have the prestige and the big names and mm -hmm. everyone's trying to go there and whatnot. I don't think their number one goal, to be honest, is to generate people for the workforce. I think their number one goal is to do research and have prestige and get funding for that research. I don't necessarily buy that they are going to be super concerned, really. And that's because I lived, you know, I, I went to school and, and, and you take courses and you have some professors that you're lucky if you even see them in person. They, they, they view teaching of students or whatever as almost a nuisance or a necessary evil so they can do what they really want to do which is, you know, write academic papers and, and whatnot. So I don't know how much of the denial in that regard is, you know, we really don't need that aspect because we get most of our money from, you know, if in the U.S., maybe it's your football team. And, and, and if you're a prestigious research university, maybe it's funding for research. And they're maybe not the best, but they're maybe mm -hmm. they're not the best vehicle to teach the workforce. And maybe Polytechnic is going to be, play a bigger and bigger role. Absolutely. Well, I mean, to your point, not, not every school can be everything to everyone. And there's yeah. like the beauty of, of the post-secondary marketplace environment, call it what you will, in Canada and in the U.S. is in its diversity. There's, there's an option for everyone with every goal. What we need to get away from is every institution trying to replicate a single model, uh, yeah. which is that, you know, elite, you know, very research-oriented model when that's not necessarily what's needed by every individual. This episode is brought to you by Modern Campus in partnership with The Evolution. 
Modern Campus empowers higher ed institutions to thrive when radical change is required to deal with lower student enrollments and revenue, rising costs, crushing student debt, and even school closures. Powered by the industry's only student-first modern learner engagement platform, presidents and provosts can work with Modern Campus to create pathways for lifelong learners while marketing and IT can deliver Amazon-like personalization and instant fulfillment. To find out more on how you can transform your institution to meet the needs of today's modern learner, visit moderncampus.com. That's moderncampus.com.